Lord's Day 7 ended with the 12 articles of the Christian faith, which we just professed together. And Lord's Day 8 of the Catechism continues. How are these articles divided into three parts? The first is about God the Father and our creation. The second about God the Son and our redemption. The third about God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there's only one God, why do you speak of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because God has so revealed himself in his word that these three distinct persons are the one true eternal God. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon we're dealing with one of the most fascinating and important aspects of our faith, our confession about God. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we confess all what's necessary for a Christian to believe. Fundamental to our faith is what we believe about God. Our creeds are all Trinitarian creeds. They focus on the works of our triune God. And so this afternoon we give attention to what we believe about God and how we can know him through his word. The teaching of the Trinity is basic to our faith. And yet it's also one of the most difficult doctrines for us to understand. On the one hand, we profess that there is only one God. And on the other hand, we believe that God has revealed himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is something mysterious here, something that is beyond our understanding. And yet, beloved, that makes sense. God is glorious, eternal, infinite, and Almighty, we are creatures made from the dust of the earth. We normally live less than 100 years. We're sinful. We're limited in so many ways. With our limited minds and our limited understanding, it is impossible for us to fully understand the glory and the majesty of our God. Yet God has revealed himself to us in his word. Through the Bible, God helps us to come to know him. In Lord's Day 7, we spoke about faith. Faith includes a sure knowledge, whereby we accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. And at the same time, faith is a firm confidence that all God's promises apply to my life. When we examine God's promises to us, we see that they include things like the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. But God does not just promise things. God promises himself to us. The Lord walked and talked with Adam and Eve in paradise. He established a relationship between, between himself and Abraham, saying... I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant 
to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The Bible says that Abraham was a friend of God. Jesus promised eternal life to all who believe in him. He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Holy Spirit is the helper whom Christ sent to live in our hearts. And so we see that the doctrine of the Trinity is not some abstract teaching far removed from the realities of our lives. The doctrine of the Trinity is fundamental to our faith. For our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit has established a relationship with us. He has promised and given us so much. We need to learn to know God, to believe in Him, to trust Him for all we need for body and soul. This afternoon I preach to you God's Word under the following theme. We draw great comfort from the relationship our triune God has established with us. We are chosen by the Father, we're redeemed by the Son, and we're sealed by the Spirit. This afternoon we read together from the beginning of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. After passing on God's greetings of grace and peace to the saints in Ephesus, Paul breaks out into this song of praise. In the verses 3 to 14, various words and phrases are piled up one on top of the other. In the Greek, these 12 verses form one sentence. Paul writes with energy, with excitement, about God's abundant blessings granted to us. Paul is filled with awe at God's wondrous works for us, his people. Paul begins his song of praise by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does it mean that God has blessed us in the heavenly places? We live on earth, not in heaven. So how can the apostles speak as if we already share in the inheritance that's been promised to us? The point the apostle wants to make here is that since Christ has ascended into glory and is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, and since we are united to him by faith, we share in all the blessings Christ has accomplished for us. These blessings include being chosen by God, being adopted as his sons and daughters, receiving the forgiveness of sins, being sealed with the Spirit, and sharing in life eternal. Paul focuses attention on the fact that God has chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. The Greek word translated chosen literally means to call out. The point is that God has called certain people out from the mass of humanity to be his. He has selected or chosen them to be his own. Paul reaffirms this fact in verse 5. He says that God predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That word predestined means to decide upon beforehand 
to predetermine, to foreordain. Paul stresses that this has come about in accordance with God's good pleasure and will. The point Paul is making is that from before the foundation of the world, God has chosen certain people. He selected them as his own to grant them salvation in Christ. Now, in Christianity, there's always been a great debate about who chooses who. In the 5th century, Pelagius taught that man is born good and that he has the ability to choose for God and do what's pleasing to God. In the time of the Reformation, Erasmus opposed the teachings of Martin Luther. He defended the belief that man has a free will and that he can choose for God. In the 17th century, the followers of Jacob Arminius again proposed that man's will was not tainted by the fall into sin. And that as a result, man has the ability to choose for God. Today, many Pentecostal, charismatic, evangelical, and mainline churches teach we must choose for God. But in Ephesians 1, Paul teaches the opposite. He plainly states that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that he predestined us to adoption through Christ. And this is what the Bible consistently teaches. In the Old Covenant, God often speaks about how he chose the people of Israel as his own. In Amos 3 verse 2, the Lord witnesses to his people saying, You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. In the New Covenant, God allowed all nations to share in the blessings of Israel. Yet it's still God who predestines, who elects, who chooses people unto salvation. In Matthew twenty-two fourteen, Jesus said, For many are called, but few are chosen. The good news of salvation is proclaimed to many. But only those whom God has chosen unto salvation receive it with faith and joy. In Acts 13, Luke writes about Paul and Barnabas' missionary work in Pisidian Antioch. Luke records the response of the Gentiles to the gospel. He writes, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 1 John 4.19 makes it clear that we love God because God first loved us. This teaching about God choosing us from before the foundation of the world often raises questions in our hearts. Don't we in some way have to make a choice for God? Don't we have any responsibility in our salvation? Are we not required to repent and believe? If God is the one who chooses us, if you made that choice before the foundation of the world, then what about all those poor souls who did not get chosen? They didn't stand a chance. If that's how things are, is God really being fair? 
How can God demand faith and obedience from people he hasn't chosen and then condemn them to hell forevermore for their failure to love and to serve him? In answering such questions, the Bible teaches us two truths. The first is that God is 100% sovereign. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He's fully in control of all that happens in this world. In Psalm 139, verse 16, David confesses, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has a plan for each of our lives. How long we will live, who we will marry, what we will do. That plan includes whether or not we will hear the call of the gospel and how we will respond to it. It includes whether we will share in the spiritual blessings of God in Christ or not. The Bible also reveals a second truth. It is that each person is 100% responsible for their life and for the decisions that they make in it. Most of us have learned the Christian faith from a young age. Our parents read us Bible stories and taught us about the Lord. Although it is with weaknesses and shortcomings, they modeled the Christian life for us. Many of us have been blessed to receive a Christian education and to attend catechism classes. We have heard the promises of the gospel but how Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins and to grant us everlasting life. Yet there comes a time when we need to respond to the promises of the gospel. As young people already, we're called to repent and believe the gospel. We're called to commit our lives to the Lord. Each one of us needs to make a choice to love the Lord and serve him or to follow the sinful ways of the flesh. We need to make a choice about our life's direction by committing our hearts and lives to God through public profession of our faith. We need to continue making choices each day for God or against him. Choices that honor him by keeping his commands or choices that dishonor him by disobeying his commands. Yet, beloved, what we need to understand is that we can only make a choice for God if God has first chosen us. By nature, we're totally corrupt, incapable of doing any good, inclined to all evil. The fact that someone desires to commit their life to God is purely a work of God's grace. It only happens because God worked that in a person's heart by his word and spirit. So what, from our experience, appears to be a person choosing for God is an actual result, is an actual fact, the result of what happened in heaven before this earth was made. That God first chose us. Some consider it unfair that God chose some to salvation, but according to them, rejected others. But that's not what actually happened. God made man good 
with a free will, wholly able to choose for him. But instead, man listened to the voice of Satan and chose to follow him. We rejected God's precious gifts, his commands of life. We followed the ways of the devil. The result was that we all deserved God's just judgment on sin, to be separated from him, to suffer in hell forevermore. The fact that God chose to save some is pure grace. Nobody has a right to mercy. Otherwise, it would no longer be mercy. The fact that God decided to save a countless multitude of people from all tribes and nations does not obligate him to save everyone. Reflecting on God's electing work should make us humble, very humble. Especially when we consider that we are no better than others who are passed by in God's sovereign election from eternity. Why me, O oh Lord? I'm not any better than my unbelieving neighbor or classmate, workmate or friend. I too sin every day. And yet you've chosen me. What a miracle of grace this is. The Father has not only chosen us to salvation, he's also predestined us to adoption through Jesus Christ. You know what it means to be adopted? Sometimes children don't have parents to look after them. Others may step up and choose them to be part of their family. Adopted children get to share in all the blessings of being part of that family. And that's what God has done for us. He's adopted us as his sons and daughters. He's made himself known to us as our father. He's drawn us into a relationship with him. As earthly fathers, we love our children. We make many sacrifices in life to provide our, our children's needs. We provide them with their physical needs, with food and drink, shelter and clothing. But we do more than that. We care about how they're doing in life. We support and encourage them through life struggles. Yet despite our best efforts, our love and our care for our children is filled with weaknesses and shortcomings. Yet, beloved, our Father in heaven is perfect. His love for his children is everlasting. God is good. And every good and perfect gift that comes from above comes from him. As a father, God provides abundantly for all our needs. He tells us to look at how he dresses the flowers, how he feeds the birds. And then he assures us that we are much more valuable to him than them. We have the rich assurance of Psalm 27, verse 10. That although our father and mother may, although my father and mother may forsake me, God will look after me. It gives us great comfort. God, our father, has chosen us. He loves us. He will look after us. Brings us to our second point, and it will see how we are redeemed by the Son. Our reading from Ephesians 1 makes it clear that God's electing love is totally and completely based 
on the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please note how this is reinforced in Ephesians 1. Verse 3 tells us about how we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4 says that God chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Verse 5 says that God predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. The words, in Christ, are of tremendous importance. In Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, the fact that our election and salvation is based on Christ's work is repeated in nearly every verse. They make it clear that not only they make it clear that not only God chose certain people's salvation from eternity, but also the manner in which this would take place. That it is only in and through Christ. Before the foundation of the world, the three persons of our triune God took counsel together to lay out a plan of salvation. Already at that time, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, stepped forward. He promised to give himself as a sin offering to save God's chosen ones from condemnation. He promised to pay the price that we could not pay, to redeem us from our sins and restore us to God's favor. Paul's song of praise in the first half of Ephesians 1 is grounded in the gracious work of Christ for us and in us. Now, not all agree with us that our election is founded in Christ. Those who say that we must choose for God and that we can do so of our own will disagree. When faced with a passage like Ephesians 1, they explain it in this way. They agree that before the creation of the world, God chose certain people unto salvation. But for them, the basis is not solely God's grace in Christ. Instead, it is what they call foreseen faith. They explain this as follows. They say that before the foundation of the world, God looked forward into history to see what different people would do. He looked forward to see who would come to faith, who would believe the gospel of salvation, who would make a choice for God. And on the basis of different people's choice in time, God chose whom to save before the world was made. Thus, according to the Arminians and all those who follow them today, our election is ultimately dependent on ourselves. It's dependent on our faith. Such people say, I owe my election to my faith. We would counter, I owe my faith to my election. The teaching that my election and salvation are dependent on me and my faith is an impoverishing doctrine. It is comfortless. We all know, beloved, how our faith is not always constant. How we may face struggles and trials. How we may at times hit low patches in our faith. Some are faced with anxiety disorders or severe depression, or mental illness, or Alzheimer's, or dementia. Their faith may no longer be active or living, 
because the infirmities of life have overtaken them. Does this mean that they've lost their salvation? That their election was not true? Our text makes it clear that our election and salvation are not based on anything in us. It's not dependent on our faith. As the Apostle Paul writes in verse 4 of our text, God chose us not because we are holy and blameless, but that we should be holy and blameless. Paul comes back to this in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, saying, For it's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. God's choice of us is not based on anything in us. God never chose anyone because he foresaw beforehand something good in that person. He chose certain people unto election out of mere grace. Not because of our works or our faith or anything else good in us. As far as God's choice goes, faith does not come into it at all. The love of God does not find but rather it creates faith in the believers. Faith itself is a gift of God given to the elect that they may share in all the spiritual blessings of Christ. And so we may conclude that our election finds its basis not in us, our faith, our works, our perseverance, or whatever. No, our election is based solely and completely in Christ in his loving sacrifice of his body and blood on the cross. Beloved, what comfort this gives. The Bible makes Jesus Christ known as our Redeemer, as the one who has paid the price to set me free from sin and Satan and to restore me in my relationship with God. It's through Christ's work that we're made part of our Heavenly Father's family that we may share in all the benefits of that. Brings us to our final point, and it will see that we are sealed by the Spirit. Our election took place before the creation of this world, but it's worked out in time. God uses means to bring his choice of certain people into effect. Paul understood that well. Remember, he called himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. God had to grab him, a persecutor of the church, by the scruff of the neck on the road to Damascus, to proclaim that it was Jesus the Christ whom he was opposing. In our lives, God also uses means to bring us to him. He uses the instruction of godly parents and grandparents. He uses the weekly preaching. He uses Christian education, catechism classes, good books, online sermons, and many other means to bring the gospel home to us. That we may repent and believe in the sharing Christ and all his blessings. The Holy Spirit plays a central role in bringing us to faith. He's the only one who can work repentance and renewal in people's hearts and lives. Let me give you an example. 
Near the end of his life on earth, the Jewish people cried out against Jesus, saying, Away with this man and crucify him. Fifty days later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a sermon about the risen Lord Jesus to these same people. Acts 2.37 notes their response. They were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter called on them to repent. 3,000 people repented and believed. They studied the scriptures together and broke bread. They sold their possessions in order to provide for those who were in need. What a change of heart. From hardness of heart to repentance and conversion. From murdering the Christ to loving their brothers and sisters. And why this dramatic change? Because the Holy Spirit was poured out. Holy God came to make his home in sinful hearts. And that brought about radical change. When the Spirit directs our hearts to God, it brings about a change in how we live our lives. We call this the sanctifying or the renewing work of the Spirit. He changes the direction of our lives. Instead of doing the sinful works of the flesh, he brings forth the fruit of the Spirit in us. More and more he helps us to image Christ in our daily lives. Paul talks about being sealed with the Spirit. In Ephesians 1.13, he, he writes, In Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is something that we don't always readily understand. Yet understanding what it means to be sealed with the Spirit fills us with much comfort. In the ancient world, it was common for communication to take place through a papyrus scroll. Such a scroll would be rolled up and tied with a cord. A lump of clay, wet clay, was put over the knot, and often a person's signet ring was pressed into the clay. Such a document was now sealed. When the clay dried, the scroll could not be tampered with. An unbroken seal with a king's signet ring impressed in the clay, guaranteed. This was an official communication from the king. In the same way, being sealed with the Spirit means that we're guaranteed we will share in God's promises. How can the Spirit guarantee our salvation and our participation in everlasting life? Because the Spirit is Almighty God. If the Spirit has come to work new life in us and has allowed us to share in all God's spiritual blessings, He guarantees to bring us to our eternal homeland. It's striking 
that the 144,000 of the redeemed mentioned in Revelation are those sealed by God. Our comfort is that if God has brought us to salvation, he'll never let us go. We may go through ups and downs in our lives. We may at times fall into serious sins. But if the Spirit has made us share in Christ and all his blessings, he will sustain us to the end. Beloved, God has revealed himself to us in his word as one true eternal God, consisting of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a blessing that we may know him. Obviously, our understanding of God is limited. For our God is majestic and glorious, far beyond our understanding. His thoughts and his ways are far beyond our comprehension. And yet, we may truly know him. For God has promised himself to us. He did so to each one of us personally at our baptism. We may know him as a faithful father who chose us and loves us and cares for us. We may know him as a loving son who gave up his life to redeem us. We may know him as a renewing spirit who grants us life with God and guarantees our eternal well-being. Praise be to our triune God, for he's the God of our salvation. Amen. Let's respond to the gospel message by rising and singing from hymn 35. <laughs> 